Welcome back to The Joseph Cox Show. This week, I want to talk about Purim. But I also want to talk about whether the messages of Purim are still relevant in a Jewish world that is no longer in exile. In fact, I want to contrast the Megillah with the Torah portion of Tetzaveh, which is this week's Parsha. So let's start with a brief explanation of the Megillah itself from a geopolitical perspective. I'm assuming you're already somewhat familiar with the story. If not, pick up a Megillah. It's fun and a fast read until you get to the last chapters, which get, get kind of boring. So after the Vashti episode, which is early on in the story, Achashverosh distributes the following message throughout his empire. Quote, every man should bear rule in his own house and speak according to the language of his people. This is, needless to say, an odd message. Sure, Ahasuerus had family problems and decided that cracking down on wives was the only reasonable response to them. And yes, some Persian emperors, in particular our suspected Ahasuerus, had some serious family problems. But why does he include the bit about speaking your own language? The reason is that the early Persian Empire wasn't like previous empires. In fact, it was quite different even than some present-day empires where China is doing its best to slowly erase Mongolian and other ethnic languages and cultures, the Persians didn't just suppress the locals like the Babylonians or Assyrians did. Instead, the Persians appointed native kings as satraps, and they allowed the conquered people's lives to continue just as before. Only taxes were paid to Persia instead of to the previous rulers. Persia and Medea themselves were tax-free, which may have been why so many Jews lived there. This satrap-based system was held together by local Persian garrisons and traveling auditors known as the Eye of the King. It's a great name. The goal was to focus on what the Persians cared about, not domination per se, but cash flow. So when Ahasuerus passed a law that applied across all the different provinces of his empire, he had to add another rule, that every man should speak according to the language of his people. He was basically saying, I just passed a universal law, but I want to make extra sure that I'm not encroaching on your way of life. This is core to the structure of the entire operation as set up by Cyrus the Great. And this is important because the Jews don't really fit into this sort of system. Jews are a problem. Sure, at the beginning of the story, they're disappearing. We can see it in their names. Mordechai, the leader of the people, is named Mordach Lives. Marduk was the name of a highly prominent Babylonian god. He was the equivalent of the Greek Apollo, or perhaps even Zeus. The famous Cyrus cylinder describes Cyrus the Great as having been chosen by Marduk. Mordechai's own lineage had clearly Jewish names, but Mordechai does not. For her part, Esther had a Jewish name, but she also had a very, very non-Jewish name. Esther, after Astarte, was the goddess of, well, stuff you don't want to go into too much with your children. So the Jewish people were on the verge of extinction without any help from Haman. But as long as they existed, they posed a problem for the empire. As Haman put it, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of thy kingdom, and their laws are diverse from those of every people. Neither keep they the king's laws, therefore it does not profit the king to suffer them. In other words, the Jews have slipped through the cracks. They don't fall within any of the geographic satrapies, and they don't keep the local laws. They also don't keep the king's laws. They aren't part of the system, and so they threaten the design. This actually reminds me of a time I was cornered in a laundromat by a guy who was angry at Jews for not getting with the program, for not fitting with the program. It was quite a, quite a discussion we had that was related to the Megillah itself. I did a video about that a while ago. You can find it in the transcript for this episode on josephcox.com. 
in the immediate sense. Their satrap, Mordechai, refuses to bow to the viceroy Haman himself, showing the people to be entirely outside the law. The obvious solution for the king is to eliminate them. They could potentially undermine the entire empire because they don't fit with how the empire is being constructed. The world needs consistency, after all. In a way, from the empire's perspective, Haman is right. But after a clever and divinely inspired turn of events which emphasizes the value of this outsider people, Mordechai is promoted to Haman's position. When the next message is sent out, it is sent out unto every province according to the writing thereof, and unto every people after their language, and to the Jews according to their writing, and according to their language. The Jews achieve the status of a nation, despite not having a land. They are specially called out for a unique role. But how did they suddenly fit? In fact, they became the exception that strengthened the empire. Instead of the occasional eye of the king or Persian garrisons mistrusted by locals, Ahasuerus suddenly had an entire people dispersed and living among the various nations. Mordechai was a micro-example of this when he understood the languages of Bigdom and Teresh and realized that they were planning to assassinate the king. He wasn't of their people, but he understood what they were saying. The Jewish network was in full force, and the empire was strengthened as a result. And at the end of the story, the king raises taxes. It's a reflection of the Jews' new position. The dispersal and loyalty of the Jews has strengthened the empire, and thus Ahasuerus' ability to collect tribute. This story, this geopolitical story of Perm, became a template for so much of our history. We find ourselves dispersed around the world and we find a way to make our exceptionalism work for the powers in the world, whether it's God or earthly kings. And if we don't accomplish this, then we suffer or perhaps we simply disappear. In a way, the Perm story is providing a template for life in the diaspora. How do you get by dispersed to the four corners of the world? But I don't think the Perm story provides much of a template for a people that has returned to its home. For that template, this week's Torah portion is far more fitting. This week's portion is about the Kohen, the priest's clothing. It would seem to be one of these extremely boring readings, but it really isn't. Clothing can tell us a lot about a man. And for people held up as a kingdom of priests, the clothing of a priest can tell us a lot about who we are supposed to be when we are in our home. To set the stage, we need to understand a bit more about the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and the materials used in it. As we covered last week, the Mishkan's design is a literal representation of God dwelling within the people. It captures our mutual values, investments, and covenants. It is a nexus of the finite and the infinite. But despite the architecture, we just can't walk up to the Mishkan and say, Dude, I can see forever from here. It doesn't just sit there. No, the Mishkan is a happening place. And it is the Kohanim who make it happen. And for this job... They can't just show up in their civvies. Back in my day, young management consultants would always wear a suit. It not only honored the firm and the clients, it made the kid in the suit feel like he fit the role. Likewise, Moshe is told to make clothes for the honor, for honor and for glorification. But the text doesn't say whose honor and whose glorification. The reason is for this is because the clothes honor God and the people while making the Kohen himself feel like he fits the role, just like those clothes for the young management consultant. I'm going to digress a bit, though. We need to talk about materials in order to understand the clothing that they're used in. We're not talking about fine Italian leather or alpaca wool, though. The Torah has some other things in mind. First, we've got gold. 
As discussed before, it represents the divine. Then we've got Tehelet, or sky blue. Up until the 1960s, when she stuck some monkeys and dogs in orbit, there was nothing dead in the sky. It was a place without loss. So blue represents purity from loss or death. In Bamidbar, chapter 4, we have various colors used to cover things. Blue can cover everything but the ashes and the tools of the offerings. Why not those things? Because blue represents purity from loss, and ashes don't. The next color we have is purple. In Bamidbar, purple covers the ashes of the offerings, the part that the blue can't cover. And as was common in the ancient world, this color represents honor. And how about scarlet, or tola'at shani? When the people collect the mana, the man, some saved it, worried there wouldn't be more. The tola'at, or worms, ate their mana. It taught them trust in God, but it also reinforced God's ongoing investment in the people. This concept of trust and investment is seen in the cycles of Shabbat, of Shemitah, and the Yovel, the sabbatical and the Jubilee years. Shani, for its part, implies repetition, or a cycle. So tola'at, tola'at shani, or scarlet, represents the cycle of trust and investment. This is why in Bamidbar, it covers the bread and utensils of the divine table, the signs of Hashem's investment in us, and of course, something that has a connection to the man itself. Finally, we have sheish, or linen. Linen is a material which humans grow and then process. The word sheish means six, recalling the six days of work. As far as fabrics go, this is the closest representation of our human effort. Sheish marshazar, or fine woven linen, just reinforces the human hand in the material. So, gold is divinity, blue is purple, pur- uh, blue is purity, purple is honor, scarlet is the cycle of trust and investment, and linen is human industry. So, Aaron, our young management consultant, is somehow selected as a Kohen Gadol. Good question is, what makes him qualified? Well, we know the definition of a Kohen from the giving of the Ten Commandments at Har Sinai. A Kohen draws close to God in a way he meets God. So, why choose Aaron? Well, Aaron is a very bendy fellow. He does what others ask. He doesn't put himself in the middle. He isn't focused on his own pride. Unlike Moshe, Aaron doesn't argue with God. He somehow works for both God and his brother without any arguments or dispute, despite his brother clearly not being 100% on board with Hashem's plan. So Hashem asks Aaron to go to Moshe. Aaron goes. The people ask him to make a calf. He makes it. He's called a pursuer of peace for precisely this reason. He is so eager not to fight that he sometimes fails to stand up. And so long as the wiggliness is guided, this is an excellent attribute in a Kohen. Just like a management consultant, a Kohen doesn't represent himself. His own ego is supposed to be minimized. He represents the firm. The Kohen's ephod, the first of the garments, helps with this whole ego minimization thing. The effort has straps that go up to the shoulders where the names of the tribes are inscribed on stones and embraced by gold. As the Kohen walks, he's carrying the names of the people embraced by God on his shoulders. Why? Well, the text says, V'nasa Aaron et shmotam l'ithnei Hashem al shtei ketefav l'zikaron. Aaron shall bear their names before Hashem upon his two shoulders as a reminder. The effort reminds the Kohen that he is carrying the relationship between the people and God on his shoulders. The ephod doesn't only have straps, though. It wraps around the cone, constraining him. According to most opinions, the ephod wraps around the legs. The legs represent will, which is why angels are traditionally imagined as having no legs. Yaakov, the most willful of the forefathers, only draws up his legs right before he dies. So using the clothing as a guide, the effort as a guide, not only does the Kohen carry the relationship on his shoulders, he is constrained by it. The relationship constrains him even as he is responsible for holding it up. 
From the effort, we can see, this is almost the definition of responsibility. From the effort, we can see that the first job of a Kohen, the first responsibility of a Kohen, is to dedicate himself to carrying the timeless relationship between Hashem and the people on his shoulders. Next up, we have the breastplate of La, the Choshen HaMishpat. It has the Jewish tribes inscribed on stones. Stones imply something unchanging and permanent. This time, each tribe stands alone. The stones are connected by materials of purity, honor, trust, and industry and divinity, but they are also embraced by God's gold. So God embraces the people, and the people are wrapped up in these attributes so they can come before Hashem. But this is not just the Choshen. This is not just a breastplate. It's the Choshen HaMishpat, the breastplate of law. We are embraced in this way. We wrap ourselves up in this way through our laws. Our laws enable us to overcome decay and the loss and draw close to Hashem. They enable us to be a kingdom of priests with a governing legal system. Finally, the Choshen HaMishpat is placed in the heart, the source of blood that gives us physical potential. So what's the job of this garment? The text says, V'nasa Aaron et Shemot b'nei Yisrael b'choshen HaMishpat and Aaron shall bear the names of the children of Israel and the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goes into the holy place for a reminder before Hashem continually. The breastplate is there so that the high priest can bring the names of the children of Israel into the place of holiness continually. He brings the Jewish people embraced by God into timelessness. The message of the second garment is that the Kohen's potential, his heart, is dedicated to carrying the people to holiness. His shoulders are dedicated to carrying the relationship. His heart is dedicated to carrying the people. The third garment is the me'il, the robe. The me'il is made entirely of techelet and it is not torn. Techelet is the color of the sky. There is no death in the sky. The me'il symbolizes a reality without loss, impurity, or destruction. This is why it's not torn. At its bottom, earthward, the me'il has pomegranates and gold bells. Fruit in the Torah are always gifts of Hashem. The pomegranates are blue, purple, and scarlet, capturing his gifts of purity, honor, and investment. And finally, the gold, there are gold bells. Hearing is our way of, of connecting to Hashem. A walking man could never control the sound of gold bells on his hem, but Hashem can. These bells and pomegranates are towards the bottom. They're earthward. In this way, the me'il represents and even speaks for Hashem. Note there is no linen in the me'il. This garment represents Hashem, not humankind. The text says, It shall be upon Aaron to minister, and the sound thereof shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before Hashem, and when he comes out, that he die not. The third job of a Kohen is to wrap himself in divinity and continually listen to the voice of Hashem so that he can survive before him. So that he can enter holiness. We had at Harsina the idea of Hifratz, the idea of holiness exploding within him. Well, if you wrap yourself in godliness, if you wrap yourself in divinity, then you can survive the experience. So far we have three garments. The Kohen is weighed down and constrained by the relationship through the ephod. The Kohen brings the people before Hashem with the breastplate, and the Kohen is wrapped in lossless divinity with the meal. Finally, we have the tzitz, the headband. It is worn on the forehead, and on it is written, Kadosh Hashem. The text says, V'nasa Aaron et avon hakodashim asher yakdishu b'nei Yisrael l'chol matanot kedoshehem v'haya al mitzcho tamid l'ratzon ha'hem l'fnei Hashem. 
Aaron shall bear the burden of the holies, which the children of Israel shall hallow with all their holy gifts, and it shall always be upon his forehead that they may be accepted before Hashem. This headband of gold and blue brings it all together. It is pure and divine, and it marks the Kohen as holy to Hashem, but it does more than that. The Kohen is to bear the Avon, the spiritual burden of the people's holiness in his mind. Avon is normally translated as sin, but I see it more as the burden of sin. It's the thing that comes after the sin itself. Why here does holiness have a burden? The text explains it. Aaron is carrying the people's gifts. He's not free. He is constrained as a messenger of the people's substantial investment in the divine relationship. With a headband, the Kohen represents all the previous garments in one. He's holy to Hashem, as with Me'il. He is carrying the people's investments and thus representing them before God, and he is carrying the burden of the relationship between God and man. This is the job of the Kohen Gadol. Bring man before God, bring God before man, and minimize your own role in that relationship. Of course, the Kohen Gadol isn't the only Kohen. The clothing of the regular Kohanim reinforces this message. There's a tunic of highly patterned linen representing human productivity and creativity. There's a turban that covers the hair and thus minimizes the ego of the individual. And there's the sash. It is made of many colors, representing the divine gifts of purity, honor, and the cycle of trust. The high priest wears these same garments as a sort of base layer of symbolism. Finally, there's a poor quality linen undergarment. It doesn't symbolize anything, but serves to hide the biological wastefulness of the Kohen himself. It brings him closer to the lossless reality of the divine. The clothes are defining the man. Rather than being an enabler of God or Achashverosh in the diaspora, the priest is the enabler of the divine relationship and a minimizer of himself. The clothes aren't the end of this, though. Our management consultant actually has to do the work. And so this reading includes a few offerings. First, there's a bull. Bull represents nations. In this case, we offer the blood, inner fats, and purifying organized organs of the bull. These represent the potential, endurance, and purity of the Jewish people. In other words, the Jewish people are connected to Hashem through this offering. Next, rams are offered. With Yitzchak's sacrifice, the ram is a substitute, which also represents fear of God and the subservience of our will to Him. The ram serves the same purposes here. The first ram represents the Kohanim. They lay their hands on it, putting themselves into it, and then they sacrifice it, dedicating themselves to God, like Yitzchak himself. The Kohanim dip the blood of the second ram on their right big toe, thumbs, and ears. They thus signal that the prime of their will from the feet or legs, of their action from the thumbs, and influence from their ears will be dedicated to Hashem. They constrain themselves through the fear of God. By waving unleavened and oiled bread, representations of human labor and purification before Hashem, the Kohen shows that they are constrained because they represent the people. The altar itself is then sanctified through sin offerings. Through sin offerings, even our failings can be made into positives. We thus prepare our imperfect reality for the presence of Hashem. Finally, Hashem himself is brought into the picture through the continual and thus timeless offerings. Sheep enable their keepers, who are often nomads, great freedom. By making them part of this offering, we can see that the timelessness of the divine is brought in, despite the flexibility of the world as it is entering. Put all this together and you've got a Kohen in both dress and in deeds. To remember the whole thing, just keep in mind the three themes. The Kohen's will is constrained. The Kohen brings the people into God's world, and the Kohen brings God into ours. We have two models then. The Purim model speaks to our lives outside our land, but this Parsha, as uninspiring as it may seem, speaks to our aspirations within it. We've never gotten the living in our land thing right. 
and close to a thousand years of self-rule, we've only had a few decades that have been reasonably good. Arguably, our modern state has had more success in its seven decades than all of ancient and classical Israel combined. This despite all the problems we have. So what did we get wrong in the past? Well, I think we pursued the wrong goals. The goal of a Kohen isn't the military success of David. It isn't the lavish spending of Shlomo. It isn't the anarchy of the early tribes or judges or the corruption of the later kings. It isn't the violence of the Hashemarayim or even the obstinance of the Roman rebels. The job of our nation, of our people, is to be an interface. We aren't here to play ourselves up, to worship our own abilities, to pursue glory or even wealth. We are here to be an interface, to bring man before the timeless God, to bring God before man, and to be burdened by the weight of that relationship. We don't play ourselves up, we minimize ourselves in service of something greater. Perm is about another life, another world. We drink in celebration of our survival. But a Kohen can't drink on the job. A Kohen has more important things to do. So enjoy your perm, but afterwards remember where we are and the job we have yet to accomplish. Thank you and Shabbat Shalom.